everyone. Welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is episode 398. We're getting closer and closer to 400, and I'm very excited about that. I can't believe we have 400 podcasts. Uh, this one is a broadcasting icon. I don't use that term loosely, but the gentleman that we have on the show is a broadcasting icon. He is, for four decades, the voice on the radio side of the Boston Red Sox, Joe Castiglione. Castiglione joined the Red Sox broadcast team in 1983 and last year was honored in a pregame ceremony at Fenway Park and inducted to the Red Sox Hall of Fame. This season, Castiglione is working a reduced role. He's only going to call 81 games as the primary announcer as he's starting to scale back. He's 76 years old. My connection to Joe Castiglione is from decades ago uh, when I started working for Major League Baseball, and I worked there starting in the 2001 season. Joe Castiglione was one of the people who embraced the idea of MLB radio. He came on our shows. He was a regular. Uh, I traveled to Boston all the time to uh, cover games, and he was always, always a friend. And I felt like, especially through 2004, uh, my years at MLB, I spent so much time at Fenway. I was at, I attended the ALCS between the Yankees and Red Sox in 03. That's the Aaron Boone series. And then, of course, the magical 2004. Uh, I covered that whole run. I, you know, it, it was such an ex- experience, and Castiglione was a, a part of it. You know, if you follow me on social media, you know that I just recently took my family uh, up to Boston. It was the first time I had been in Boston and wasn't for work. Uh, I had only, I'd been up dozens of times, uh, but I'd always had a project or an assignment or a game to cover. It was never just to, to hang out and have like a vacation. Uh, and we did. And part of our vacation, we went to Fenway Park. Uh, and it would have been the first time that I had been in Fenway Park in 15 years. What a great experience. And it was so nice to see so many people that I had spent so much time with. That's when the idea came uh, to have Joe on the podcast. As you'll hear in the interview, he didn't get his start as a Red Sox announcer. He started in Cleveland and also called a handful of Milwaukee Brewers games. Uh, He grew up in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and was a Yankee fan growing up. But he's a remarkable guy, and I always say that if you have a podcast called Sports with Friends and the ability to have an icon like this, you do it, and you do it before it's too late. As for this week in sports, the NBA playoffs take center stage. Uh, We are going to preview the first round of the NBA playoffs with the head odds maker at BovadaSportsBook.com, Patrick Morrow. We're not going to do the play-in games because if you're listening to this podcast, we're not going to do the play-in games because if you're listening to this podcast, you know uh, they happened already. And I, that's not how podcasts work. The timing has to be right, and uh, it'll be right for the first round of the NBA playoffs. So let's welcome in the voice of the Red Sox, Joe Castiglione. Joe, first of all, uh, thank you so much for, for doing the podcast. I feel a little guilty uh, when I read in the, the Boston Globe that you were scaling back and going to do only about 81 games uh, this particular season, my immediate reaction was, oh, well, maybe now he has time to do sports with friends. Is it bad that that's where my brain went? Oh, you always got to take advantage of a situation, but uh, <laughs> no, that's fine. Great to talk to you again, Seth. It's been a while, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, 
I've done 162 games for close to 40 years. Uh, last couple of years, I've done about 145. So uh, at this stage, uh, time to uh, take some time with the wife and grandkids and kids and, you know, cut back on the travel, especially. Yeah, you know, the, the rigmaroles of of the journey, it's it's a marathon. And I, I, I can, I, I don't think anybody could suggest um, that this doesn't make sense for you physically. Um, I just wonder, and you and I talked about this off the air, do you consider this as opposed to maybe just saying, you know what, have a final year, have a big send off and, and enjoy, enjoy retirement. Well, I had a big gig uh, last July with the Red Sox honored me and named the booth for me on my 40th year there. And, uh, you know, I've given that some thought, but it probably will happen sooner than later, but I still love it. And, uh, you know, the club has been great. They allow me to do whatever, uh, whatever games I want to do. And the same with, uh, Odyssey. So, it's the best of both worlds as far as I'm concerned and, you know, keeps the wife happy too. <laughs> That's right. What is it like? Uh, this is the kind of questions you can ask on a podcast that I would never ask you live. Um, what is it like watching the Red Sox? You know, you're not, you're, you're physically in, in good condition. You know, I, I, I would imagine it, it, it's gotta be a strange feeling just turning on the television and seeing the team that you've called all their games for <laughs> decades yeah i mean i've been in fort myers uh, where we have a home and uh you know last listening and uh watching on mlb tv it's a lot it's a lot different certainly because uh, at first you get the feeling that you should be there and uh, it is a little strange but i think i'm getting used to it uh especially when i'm uh, having fun doing other things yeah <laughs> right you don't think about it uh during that 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 time um it's an interesting story. I remember one of the things about you and, and, and you know, this isn't a roast, so I'm not going to sit here and just sing your praises the, the whole time. Um, I remember when we launched MLB radio back in 2001, uh, you were one of the first people to just welcome us. Uh, you came on our radio show, Daryl Hamilton and I used to talk about how you used to do the radio show, Billy sample. And I used to have you on the radio show and it was just a kindness that, I mean, frankly, not everybody in the league <laughs> had been, you know, only a handful of teams. You weren't the only one, but but you were you were one of those people. So when 2004 happened, we were so happy because we knew you and that was part of the experience. What was it like? Your career took a turn um, when 2004 happens and 2004 for 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 listeners. That's the year that the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. And everything, the whole perception of the city changed. It certainly relaxed a lot. Uh, I would have to hear the woe is me, where was I when Bucky Dent hit the home run or the ball went through Buckner's legs. Uh, we were able to put that uh, in the past. I think that was huge. Um yeah, I started my baseball career with the Cleveland Indians in 1979 doing television, and we were perennial a six-place team in that era, right? In a six-team division. So, you know, I came to Boston and uh, had a chance to win every year, competitive every year, which we didn't think about in those days back in Cleveland. So, 
um, it took me a while, even though I'm from New England, to understand the New Englanders' mentality about losing 46 in the seventh game and 67 in the seventh game and 75 and uh, all those other heartbreak situations. But winning it in 04 really did change everything. And uh, probably the highlight of my career, my mind, although uh, it, it's hard to pick which world championship you like best when you have four of them. Uh, <laughs> I, comparative, you wouldn't pick out one child and say, this is my favorite. So, right. right. Uh, they're well, all good. The one, the one thing the that you can honestly say, there's no, uh, there's no such thing as a uh, long-suffering Red Sox fan anymore. Thankfully, yes. Uh, and that uh, has been put on the back burner, although you still have complaints uh, we haven't won since 18 now. It's only oh, God. <laughs> 50 year, but uh, many franchises uh, would gladly trade that. Uh, and to have four in 15 years is really a testament to the franchise and the ownership. One of the neat things, uh, you, you got to the Red Sox in 83, and you mentioned they were competitive. Uh, they make the World Series in 86. Uh, in, in 1986, in that game six, uh, you had been sent down. I remember you telling this story. I, re I read about it when I was doing some prep for the podcast, but I remember you telling the story. You went down to the clubhouse. You were going to cover the Red Sox celebratory clubhouse. And so you didn't see, you heard uh, the ball, Mookie Wilson's ball that went through Bill Buckner's legs. Yeah, I was spared. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was I did the top of the 10th inning in game six of the 86 World Series, which was the uh, schedule, the rotation I had with Ken Coleman, I did the top of the 10th and Henderson Hendo hit the home run. The Red Sox got a second run when Barrett single home box. The great Dave Henderson, one of the great people I ever knew. And one of the most fun guys to be around. I think yeah. he thrived uh, in pressure situations, a large part because of his personality, but he was so loose. But I did the top of the 10th. I said to Ken Coleman during the commercial break, you want me to go down to the clubhouse for the celebration, or do you want me to stay and do the bottom of the tenth? And I had two thoughts. Number one, he'd been there twenty years. I was my fourth year. He should call the last out of the world championship, the first sure. ever on radio for the Red Sox. And besides, I wanted to be down there and get doused in champagne. <laughs> so I got down to the bowels of Shea Stadium, and uh, by the time I got there, they were two out, nobody on. And I, I saw them bring the champagne in the clubhouse. The lockers were covered with the protective cellophane. And I watched Mrs. Yawkey come in and Lou Gorman. And uh, then I sort of saddled up to a security guard who had a little radio. And I heard the bass hit, bass hit, bass hit. And then Bob Murphy says, ball gets away. And here comes the tying run. <laughs> and at that point, I said, I got to be back for the 11th inning the game tied so i started to run up the ramp because you know shea stadium was even antiquated then yep and the ele elevator service was terrible so i was yep. on a ramp when the ball went through buckner's legs i did not actually see it till sports center at 2 a.m <laughs> and you know I, I you know i felt badly but obviously but uh, i thought we could win the next night we did have a three nothing lead two nights later because we got a rain out for game seven yep i remember that. and then I said, well, this is my fourth year. We'll be back. And we didn't get back to the World Series for another 18 years. <laughs> That's crazy. More with Red Sox broadcasting legend Joe Castiglione in just a moment. But first, 
It is also the NBA playoffs beginning. I told you Sports with Friends is a podcast that gives you everything in the sports world. We can't do the play-in games just because of the timing of the release of this podcast, but there are first-round matchups to look at, and we will do so with the head odds maker at Bavada, Patrick Morrow. We'll start with the Cleveland Cavaliers against the New York Knicks, a team that everybody wants to see get to the next level, but still they're right in the middle of the rung. Seth, I think you hit the nail square on the head here. I, no more so than in the NBA than any other U.S. facing league. Uh, do you want to be in the middle, the mushy middle, especially in a conference like the East, which is even worse than the Western Conference? Um, we are talking about two teams here in the Knicks and Cavaliers. Both of them are not winning the NBA championship this year. I, I hope I'm not crashing any dreams for anybody out there. These are two teams that just, they're not even on the same plane as the serious contenders out there. And th this has become a problem in the NBA where it, if you're not first, you're last at the risk of quoting Ricky Bobby. So if you're that fourth, fifth team, you're also not getting help in the draft. You're not getting the kind of, you know, star coming out of college that's going to lift your team up. Uh, looking at these odds, Seth, the Cavaliers are currently minus 210 favorites at Bavada. They're taking about 85% of all bets so far. So a little bit more love for them but these are two teams that we are not expecting to go far at all. All right, let's jump to the Western Conference. The 4-5 matchup there are the Phoenix Suns and the LA Clippers. Of course, the Suns with the acquisition of Kevin Durant. How does that change things? Seth, the Suns are, you know, uh, I would say one of the teams that I, I, I would say are in the mix this year. Uh, just because when you add someone like Kevin Durant to a team that was already pretty good, a team that was recently in the NBA Finals, uh, they got a shot. It's always tricky to project overall performance to a team going forward. When you add a star uh, uh, like Kevin Durant, uh, it's a good thing. You obviously expect the Suns to be better, but how good becomes a, a trickier thing for us as odds makers to try and project. What we know for sure though, is that the Suns are massive favorites against the Clippers. They are currently minus 550 to win the series and they are getting almost all the bets right now at Bavada. Uh, the Clippers not expected to go very far in this one. The Suns, though, they got a legitimate chance, though, I think, in the West. All right, now let's take a look at the three six matchups. Uh, super compelling ones because the Golden State Warriors, a team with legitimate title hopes, uh, find themselves in the sixth seed. How they got to the sixth seed? Well, that's a lot of injuries, but they seem to be healthy. They'll take on a Sacramento Kings team that fought for the title as well. 3-6, Sacramento Golden State. Seth, this might be one of the few, maybe the only first round matchup in the NBA playoffs that I'm actually kind of interested in seeing how it goes. I mean, uh, well, I'd say, you know, maybe the Lakers, just because of where they land and because of the similar trajectory their season has had to the Golden State Warriors, uh, largely injury plague, largely out of sorts, but a team that is playing good basketball at the right time. It does remind me of one of the Warriors' uh, prior championship runs where they entered the playoffs as a seven or eight seed, but it, they were very much the Warriors of old by the time they got to the playoffs. And then you have the Kings. They were 250 to one to win uh, their division before the season started. Massively outperformed expectations. They, their Cinderella story might be coming uh, to the end of its run right now but the year, they're currently plus 240 right now. Golden State is minus 290. So one of the tighter uh, series prices odds, 
at Bavada right now, and money is actually pretty evenly split in this one. So the betters that likes the Kings at 250 to one, they like them right now. Uh, I'm intrigued. I'm curious to see where it goes. And then the other one is also compelling, the Philadelphia 76ers, who their fan base still thinks this is a chance for it to be the year. Uh, of course, they had the big blockbuster trade with James Harden for Ben Simmons. Uh, the Nets just ransacked their whole team in the middle of the season. They make no sense whatsoever. They managed to get the sixth seed, although at times they show themselves to be a, a cohesive unit. Uh, I, I don't know what to make of the Nets. I don't know what to make of the Sixers, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn renewing their rivalry. Yeah, it's 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 weird, Seth, to think of the Brooklyn Nets as a playoff team after parting ways with Kyrie, after parting ways with Kevin Durant. Uh, this was a team at the beginning of the year that was at the very top of the NBA futures board. And I, I think it really speaks to the, the the poor quality of the East, a very top heavy conference uh, that a team like the Nets, after parting with those stars, are even in the playoffs at all. Having said all of that, it's really no surprise to me that the 76ers are as big a favorites as they are. Uh, they are currently minus 900 uh, the biggest first round favorite for the games that we have priced right now. And the Nets are plus 575 on the other side. Uh, the handle right now is pretty split between these two teams. And I, I think if you're the Philadelphia 76ers, Seth, you've got to, it's not just that you're expected to win this series. You've got to win this at, in four or five games so that you are in good shape to be uh, right there with the Celtics or the Bucks, who are gonna be waiting for you in the next round. The 76ers overall are four to one to win the East at Bavada. So th I think this is about getting through the Nets as quickly as possible, as unscathed as possible. Nets don't have a shot. All right, you heard it here first, right here on Sports with Friends. Our thanks to Patrick Morrow, head odds maker at Bavada. Now back to our outstanding conversation with the legendary voice of the Boston Red Sox on the radio side, Joe Castiglione. You mentioned that you were uh, originally from New England, um, but you would have worked anywhere. I mean, it, you know, you said you started with, with Cleveland. Um, if the Atlanta Braves had called you or the, the Seattle Mariners had called you, would you have gone any anywhere? Did was were the Red Sox something that you had kind of circled and said, "This is something I want for my life"? Well, it was at that time, but uh, to uh, bear my soul, I was a Yankee fan growing up, being oh. from New Haven, and you know my family were Yankee fans, at least on my father's side, because they had the Italian players like Joe DiMaggio, and because my mother's side were Brooklyn Dodger fans, uh, and the Red Sox were there, but. You know, in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, when I was um, a teenager, the Red Sox were not competitive, so we didn't give them much thought. But then I would have gone anywhere, certainly, uh, to get a full-time baseball job. Because in Cleveland, you know, we only did 40 games. That was the Those were the days before cable, and we were a CBS affiliate, and you weren't going to preempt CBS in prime time right. for a sixth-place team very often so. so you would do saturdays sundays and the occasional weekday afternoon game occasional weeknight in the summer you know when uh reruns were on cbs so uh but we were never competitive enough to add games right 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 they would have added if if there was interest right. 
of interest. I've told this joke uh, uh, repeatedly on this podcast. Uh, when the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers uh, won the NBA championship, they had a parade in downtown Cleveland. And if you've ever been in downtown Cleveland, you know it's not that big a place. Uh, you can't really go anywhere in downtown Cleveland and not see the Indians ballpark, you know, the, the current ballpark where, where, the, where they play. And supposedly 1.6 million people uh, went to the Cavaliers parade and the, the, they were the Indians then. They only had about 19,000 people that night for the game. That means 1.59 pe- million people walked by that stadium and said, nah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, uh, they did have a long sellout streak of over 400 games when they were yeah, great they in the 90s. Uh, they, they had a fate similar to the Red Sox. I mean, they lost in the seventh game of the World Series, uh, in, 97 and then again in 16 to the Cubs. Yep. So uh, they can share uh, some of that history. But it's a great baseball town. When I was there, Gabe Paul was the team president and he always called the Cleveland the sleeping giant. And it turned out to be true. I do think it's primarily a football town, but given a great product that they did turn out. And, uh, you know, I still pull for them uh, because that's where I cut my teeth and it's also because of some of the great people they have like terry francona the manager terry which is like uh, the marlo hale and victor rodriguez so terry, Frank- terry francona who auditioned for mlb radio after he lost the phillies job and thank god he didn't get that gig because he wound up going to the red sox soon after yeah won a world championship in his first year and did a great job uh, you know he one again in 07, that was a wire-to-wire wire, uh, win. And uh, he really knows players. He knows how to handle them. I, I hope he can enjoy better health, which he seems to be doing right now. Uh, but just a, a great baseball man and a wonderful guy. I mean, players trust him. I think media trusts him, too. So uh, he has the best of everything going. He's in a, in a good situation. Uh, what do you make of the new rules? We touched on this off the air. Um, this season, it's only about 10 days old. Uh, there's a pitch count. Now there's uh limits to how many times a pitcher can throw over to first base, which I'm not sure I understand, uh, because once you've reached the maximum number of throws over, I don't know why the guy doesn't take just a massive lead, uh, because he can't throw over again. Um, what, what's your take on, on what precipitated it? Uh, did you notice what I had noticed in that the game had transformed and that the game in 2004 to now, it's a very different sport. It doesn't resemble each, each other. Yeah. So I think the game was desperate for change. The dead time was growing longer and longer. We would time these pitchers 35 to 40 seconds between pitches, too much non-action. There's still too many strikeouts. I'd like to see that reduced, but the game needed legislation because it, it didn't uh, protect itself against some of these analytics. Uh, and yeah, I believe in some analytics, but I think they were too dominant, including this theory. If you hold the ball longer for a pitcher, um, you can throw harder. Um, and I think that really hurt the game. The pitch clock was necessary. I think it's working well. I really like it. Uh, the stolen bases back in the game, I don't think the Red Sox can take advantage of that. Not much team speed, and they've been victimized by it early in the season. But 
I think it, it's a good rule. The one thing that I don't want to see happen is a big game or a big series, especially a postseason series, decided by a penalty when the batter might you know, be focused, step out, and have a strike call for strike three. Uh, maybe what could happen would be to give each team a warning or two a game that mm. uh, you're warned and then the penalty is not inflicted until you've reached your limit of excuses. So maybe just one a game. Just save it for big moments so that uh, it doesn't decide the outcome. I think that would be huge. Um, and I'm not sure what can be done with the stolen base rule. It is an open the invitation to go if you throw over twice. But I think it's working in that pitchers are reluctant to throw over at all, let alone that second time, because that's uh, uh, carte blanche to go try to steal the base. But it does add excitement. I love the banning of the shifts, uh, especially for left-hand batters. You're going to see their averages climb significantly this year because they were really deprived with the second baseman playing shotgun, as we called it, in right field. Right. Uh, Right-hand batters didn't face that problem because you can't play the shortstop in left field. You never throw out most runners at first base, most batter runners. So uh, I think the rules are working. Uh, they may need a little tweaking, but uh, – you know, I credit Theo Epstein. As he said at one point, he said, I created some of this with some of the analytics <laughs> and slow pace, and now he's going to uh, get back to real baseball. And it's proven to be effective, I think, in the first 10 days. Uh, Red Sox games are 23 minutes shorter on the average than the previous season. The uh, Well, you said two things there, so I, I, I want to put a pin in one and, and ask you to follow up on, on the other. Um the shift, uh, I had I, I had disliked the shift uh, from the beginning, uh, not because I didn't think it was fair. I, I never I never didn't think it was fair. My argument was always that hitters were developing these bad habits, this this launch angle, um, because you know if you hit it into the shift, you were going to just make out anyway. Um, and what it was leading to is more home runs, but more, many, many, many more strikeouts. And you said it yourself, the strikeouts are still there. I was, I told you, I went to a game at, at Fenway park. I saw a, a Red Sox game and there were a ton of strikeouts. I, I watched one game. I thought uh, San Francisco and, and the Yankees, and there were 35 strikeouts and yeah, it's happening faster, but it's still a lot of flailing. And what I, what I have noticed about the strikeouts is just the way the philosophy changed, you know, some of my old uh, broadcast partners uh, used to say that, um, well, I'll, I'll just tell the story. I haven't told this in a while on the podcast. Billy Sample told me that when he was in the, with the Texas Rangers in the late seventies, if you struck out, you had to carry your own bat back to the dugout. You were not allowed to utilize the services of the bat boy. Hmm. And because you that was your shame in striking out. And now if you burn, you know, eight or nine pitches on the other team's pitch count, because you usually know how many pitches the guy's going to throw uh, because the, the managers tell, tell everybody how many pitches these, these guys are going to throw. Even if the night, the eighth or ninth pitch is a swinging strike three, they give you high fives. They, 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 that's wonderful. It's a great job. And it, it's just a change in the philosophy and so even though the shift has been banned, which a lot of people attribute the shift to the reason why there's so many strikeouts, it just doesn't seem like the habits are going to change. 
especially considering scouts have said this is what they're teaching in the minor leagues. They're teaching this launch angle over contact, and that scares me. Well, I think you're right, uh, generally speaking, and uh, I think strikeouts are a problem because they're boring. It used to be exciting when Pedro Martinez would strike out 16 or Roger Clemens uh, would do likewise, but now uh, you know, pitcher with an average fastball will get double figures if he pitches long enough into a game, which, of course, many don't, but the point is, I think it's the philosophy of uh, the all or nothing, the home run, uh, the walk or the strikeout. And uh, the problem is they don't advance runners. So strikeouts do not advance runners. Uh, they're not productive outs. And I've never quite understood. Uh, and I, I know power hitters, of course, will strike out more than the slap hitters, but I've never quite understood that uh, philosophy of a strikeout is just an out. It's okay. Um, never made sense, and it still doesn't. I think you got to put the ball in play and move people along. That's baseball. And the launch angle is part of it, but I think it's a general philosophy of the home run uh, rather than, you know, a couple of hits and a stolen base. Maybe with the stolen base rule, we'll get back to more of that. Uh, hitters never really adjusted to shifts, uh, Seth, I think, because – uh, in many cases, they didn't try, but in other cases, it's hard to adjust when a guy's throwing 98 and hit the mm -hmm. ball the other way. Very difficult. So hopefully uh, the strikeouts will come down as a result, but pitchers aren't going to be throwing any softer either. So <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's Time will tell uh, how much they can be reduced, but hopefully they'll be reduced somewhat. More Sports with Friends in just a moment. You know, I love hosting this show, and obviously I want as many people as possible to hear every episode. I put a lot of effort into them. The reality, though, is that podcast discovery, whether you're a podcaster or a podcast listener, is hard. That's why I've partnered with the folks at Marble. M-A-R-B-Y-L. Not like marbles in your mouth like it sounds when I'm doing my podcast. Marble's AI identifies the five most interesting moments in a podcast episode and instantly transforms them into searchable, shareable clips called marbles. We've done close to 400 episodes of this show, and sometimes you want to hear about themes that we've done. You can search for hockey podcasts that we've done, football podcasts that we've done. If you want to hear about the paralysis situation with Eric Legrand, or the release of Brittany Griner. We've done four separate podcasts on Brittany Griner's arrest. All the amazing coverage we did of sports and COVID. You can easily make a marble out of this. It's easy to create and share marbles from anywhere inside my episodes on the Marble app. And as a listener of Sports with Friends on Marble, I think it's cool that anyone can go in and be the first to claim something that's said on the show as their own personally created marble. You could share it on Instagram, TikTok, social media, and if you're old like me, you could even put it on Facebook. You can be the first to marbleize a moment on the show, and it helps me get discovered. If you're a podcaster, join me in marbleizing your show. Just head to marble.com, that's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com to get started. And if you're a listener that doesn't have a podcast, it's a great and free way to directly support Sports with Friends to get the app. Simply create and share one marble from something said on this show that you enjoyed. 
not something you hated. When you subscribe to my show on Marvel, you'll get access to all the latest Marvels as they roll out. Marvel is a free app for both iOS and Android users, so head to marble.com, that's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com, or search Marvel in the app or Google Play stores. Change the way you listen to podcasts. When you have talked to Theo uh, Epstein, who now works for the league, uh, first of all, he was the he was the wonder boy. He was the he was the young hotshot uh, back in in the mid two thousands. Uh, he could do no wrong. And then he went to the Cubs and won a World Series there. And I, I I've seen the quote where he says. You know, I, I kind of created some of this problem, but it's not just him. It, it's everybody. There are statistics that show that, you know, this new mentality of hitting can lead to more runs, which ultimately can lead to more more wins. And, and there's data to, to prove it. But you said yourself, it's not exciting. And what I wonder is you mentioned you grew up, you were a Yankee fan and your your, your family had this debate with the with the Yankees and the Dodgers and you know, and then you bounced around to to the league, and you, you got a chance to know people in in the game. What I what I worry about my generation. I grew up with baseball too, and I definitely uh, re, you know remember baseball being the the thing that I I, I covered most in in my career. Um, I wonder about the kids now, who have so many other options and so many other things that are so exciting in sports. And I just wonder when when I get to be your age and the young kids get to be my age, is this sport going to have the same perception? Well, I think that's a big reason, Seth, why these rule changes were necessary because they were losing those young fans uh, because of the slow pace. They want action. They want instant action, which they were getting more of in other sports. So I think it's necessary. Uh, we're not there yet. I hope that this will bring younger people back into the game, but no guarantees because there's so many options out there. Um, Do you notice a lot of kids when you're at Fenway Park, even last year? You know what, since the pandemic, pandemic, uh, I have noticed many more young adults there, the 20 to uh, 25-year-olds, which I think is encouraging. And maybe that's because they had more tickets available and older people uh, weren't comfortable going out during uh, the pandemic. Uh, Whatever the reason, um, I think we are getting more people in that age bracket, which is great. And if they can bring their kids, you know, when they have them, uh, I think maybe that will be a big part of things. But I don't know if that's happening in other markets yet. I haven't seen those demographics but uh, that that part is encouraging uh, to me that the red sox uh you know were the cool thing to do with those wins uh because you know the people of uh, generation x have seen competitive teams all the time and they've seen world champ have to whine about the uh, bucky dent or, or buckner and those type of things so maybe if that happens uh, all over we'll get more younger people back um but I think to get the young people, you have to have kids playing the game too. Yeah. And it's it's a tough game because especially when you go from the 60 foot bases and little league to 90 feet, when you're a teenager, that's, that's quite an adjustment. And there's so much failure in the game too, but uh, it's still a beautiful game. And I think uh, kids who do play it and have some success, love it. 
So hopefully that will translate. All right. Uh, I don't want to sit here and, and try to solve the, the, the world's problems uh, on, on the podcast. And the time that I have you you're here for, um, you've had a number of different partners. Uh, you've had a, a number of different uh, broadcast partners on the radio. Sometimes radio announcers go to TV. You, you've kind of stayed on 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 the radio. Um, I wouldn't ask you to pick your favorite partner, um, because that's like saying pick your favorite championship. Uh, but what was it like having all these different people over over the years? Um, you know, it, it seems like one person is not going to do. 40 years of a team anymore. It it doesn't seem like that's where this is headed. And, you know, the, 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 the Ernie Harwell's the Vince Scully's, um, you know, John Sterling down there in, in New York, um, uh, whomever, Howie Rose, I've had this conversation with him. It just seems like everybody is bouncing around a lot more and you've had a lot of partners over the years. I have, I've had some great ones. I've had some stretches uh, with continuity. Um, they're all different, but I've been very blessed. They've all been great guys to work with. Uh, we've all had fun on and off the field, uh, and all different. I mean, I started with, uh, Ken Coleman, who was my mentor. He was very influential in me being hired because of my relationship I had with his son, Casey Coleman, the late mm. Casey Coleman in Cleveland, helping him break into TV at channel eight there. Um, uh, and Ken was a mentor, certainly, a, another generation, and I learned a lot from him, especially uh, how to handle big moments, which he was so good at uh, doing. Uh, after that, I had the Burley broadcaster, Bob Starr, one of my all-time favorites. We had three wonderful years together. Uh, you know, I was always a guy that uh, wore my emotions on my sleeve and still do. People can tell me if the Red Sox are winning or losing by the tone of my voice. Right. But uh, the Burley broadcaster's theory was, it's not my life and it's not my wife. <laughs> but he would get over defeats a lot to easier than me and he'd uh, I remember one time we were at old uh, Comiskey Park and uh, Red Sox had the tying run at third with two out I think it was Jody Reed hit a bullet the pitcher caught it Bobby Finkman and uh, Bob started laughing even though the Red Sox lost because he looked at me and he said my partner looks like he's just been harpooned <laughs> <laughs> so I learned a lot from uh, Burley Bob uh, Jerry Truppiano for 14 years. We had a great time. Great. And uh, it was different because we're the same generation. I think I'm uh, six or nine months older than Jerry. And we had uh, some great years together. We had uh, mostly winning teams after the uh, early 90s. Um, and, you know, since then, we've had uh, one year we had 10 partners. Uh, that was a experience that didn't go that well. Uh, I mean, it went fine, but there wasn't much continuity. I mean, I had some great people to work with. It was fun to be with uh, the likes of Chris Berman and uh, Mario and Pemba and uh, Boo Chambi for a couple of games. Um, great Another great guy. Wonderful. We had, so I like that diversity, um, but it's better to have somebody regular like my current partner, Will Fleming, yeah. uh, who does an outstanding job, a very bright young man. His brother, of course, uh, started with the Giants in his mid to early 20s and is still there dave fleming uh will and i have a wonderful time a wonderful relationship maybe a little bit more like the relationship i had with ken coleman in that day um because of our our age gap uh but he's so much fun to work with and i got tim neverett for three years uh 
Tim was outstanding. And I'm sure I'm leaving some Lou people. Maloney. Yep. Because Lou Maloney, uh, we're working with uh, this year, and we've worked with in the past. Uh, Lou does a great job, hometown hero. I got to call a home run in his first Fenway at bat, which uh, we play the tape quite often of that home run off Jose Rosado of Kansas City. Uh, but Lou's a hometown guy, knows not only the Red Sox, but all the other franchises in the city. Uh, so we, we've had uh, a great time, you know, working together over the years. And of course, Dave O'Brien for nine years. Uh, yeah, I'm a little There's bit older, guy. but more or less contemporaries. Uh, we had so much fun together. I think we had outstanding chemistry when we, we worked together. And, and I'm still blessed to be able to see him every day because he does television. Sure. We had uh, a great time. Glenn Geffner for a year. Uh, we did Miami for many years after that, uh, who is yeah. still a very good friend. And, uh, yeah, you know, there's just so many people out there. Uh, one guy that really helped me get going was Johnny Pesky. My first year, uh, Johnny was ill. He had the uh, autoimmune situation. And he would come up instead of coaching. He was on the staff, but he couldn't be in uniform during the game because he was pre pretty frail at the time. He would mm. come up to the booth and sit in with me and uh, during my play-by-play -play innings uh, with Ken Coleman. And helped me get established because Johnny was a guy that if he liked you, he told the whole world about you. <laughs> that helped me get established in Boston. So, plus he hit myself and my kids thousands of fungos, <laughs> pepper games. So, I once figured Johnny Pesky in his career hit the fungos about 16,000 miles, maybe 18,000, enough to go about two thirds of the way around the world. Oh, that's awesome. wonderful guy. That's great. Um, when you were honored uh, last summer, uh, you were joined on the field by uh, Roger Clemens. Uh, was that your choice? And what can you say about that experience? No, I had no idea, Seth. Uh, I know the Red Sox were planning this night on my 40th uh, season, and uh, I had no idea the name of the booth for me. Uh, all I know was my family is going to be on the field to show up, and we have uh, a great evening. Uh, and when Henry Megan, the PA announcer, started to uh, mention Roger Clemens, I looked up the video board, thought he was <laughs> going to have a, a message up there. And all of a sudden, here he comes out of the dugout. And it was such an honor that he flew up from Texas and had the plaque, uh, which names the booth for me. Uh, you know, Roger and I, uh, I did every Red Sox game he ever won, or every pitch, yeah. really, 192 wins. Uh, and we were good friends. Um, Obviously, I'm older, but uh, he was just such a, a warm guy, a very loyal guy. And uh, I think he remembered some of those moments we shared, like interviewing him after his first 20 strikeout game in 86. And uh, some of the Seattle, the downs against Seattle. Yep. Striking out the Phil Bradley for number 20. Uh, I'm going to call third strike. Uh, but Roger and Pedro have been special favorites. Uh, I mean, I can't pick favorite players. I tried to do it for my second book of my 30 favorite players for my first 30 years and came up with 43. Uh, but Roger and Pedro at the, at the top of the list among the stars. And uh, they're both very loyal guys. And I was blessed, Seth, uh, I think for 22 of my first 24 years, I had either Roger Clemens or Pedro Martinez pitching wow. every fifth day. Wow. That's quality. Yeah. Um, 
you have a unique perspective on this. Um, I always said whenever I, I covered uh, anybody with a connection to steroids, you know, when I worked for the league, you know, they had the two steroid hearings and my old philosophy was, wow, I, you know, I was a, I was a sports junkie who got to go to Congress. You know, I got to go to Capitol Hill. Like I, 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 I never took it as this moral high ground that, that it was. Um, but I always said that if it was, if it was a friend of mine, I would worry because of the, 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 the medical aspects of it. Um, what was it like watching him go through all of that, the 60 minutes and the, the, the hearings and the Mitchell report? What, w- what was it like from a distance watching a guy that you respected go through all that? Well, it was certainly difficult, and I was pulling for him because uh, I think friendship and loyalty supersede anything else. Um, and uh, I was hoping he, uh, that he would not be found guilty, and he wasn't. Mm-hmm. I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I believe him. Roger's a very focused guy. Um, and however you look at it, uh, I always felt ignorant when I was seeing all these balls flying out of ballparks, opposite field shots, especially by little guys in the late 90s that uh, I didn't realize that there was something going on, better living through chemistry. <laughs> so uh, I think that, uh, you know, the steroid area, you have to look at it. First of all, there's no legislation against it. And you have to judge it case by case. And I know if if I had a Hall of Fame vote, which is a pet peeve of mine, we don't, after watching 6,000 games, uh, I certainly would vote for Roger. I'd vote for Bonds because uh, I think they were Hall of Famers anyway. The uh, the other name you mentioned was Pedro Martinez. I, 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 I've, I've, I would... Hit. His uh, his dominant games were masterclasses. I mean, he the way he worked hitters, uh, he had them literally standing at the plate on their heels. Um, two offbeat questions regarding uh, Pedro Martinez. Do you ever see him on television now? And what's your thought? Did you ever see Pedro Martinez as a guy who would be on TV? Oh, definitely, because he has personality. Uh, the two most charismatic Athletes I've ever met are Pedro Martinez and David Ortiz. And I thought Pedro's uh, personality would carry over to uh, the TV studio where he excels. Um, and he does follow the game closely, which he has to do in that role on the MLB. But uh, I could see that happening. Uh, he just had so much fun with everything. When he pitched, the game was an event. Oh, Dominican yeah. flags all over Fenway, noisemakers. Uh, it was almost like watching games in Santa Domingo. Uh, not quite to that extent, but still a lot of noise, a lot of fun. And uh, he was so great. I mean, such a smart pitcher. He knew batters, uh, swing pass and uh, how to attack hitters. But he had the great stuff, too. I mean, he had the fastball, the changeup, uh, the Pedro change, which was legendary. And, of course, uh, the curveball. And he just had it all. So, again, I, I can't get over how blessed I was to have Roger and Pedro pitching every fifth day for so many years. And I was thrilled when I was elected to the Red Sox Hall of Fame that I was inducted along with Roger Clemens, Pedro Martinez, and Nomar Garcia Parra. What am I doing with these guys? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, icons. They're they're icons. And it's a funny story, too, because when we were asked to throw a first pitch, 
Roger said, okay, let's throw on three. And I went one, two, and I threw on two, so mine would get there when their, their pitch got there. <laughs> I love talking to Pedro Martinez. I always, uh, um, watching him from a distance was was wonderful. Um, I just, I, I always thought he was a, a, a great pitcher. I remember the, uh, the interview he did like two days after, uh, the incident with Don Zimmer. Remember the incident where he, we threw yeah, Don Zimmer to the ground. Pedro he, just, he looked at the interviewer. I don't know who was doing the interview, but, uh, he looked at the interviewer and he just said, you come barreling after me. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. He tried to be as genteel as possible. <laughs> And both regretted it. It was unfortunate. Uh, but Red Sox Yankees in that uh, era, <laughs> they were they were wars. Those games. The uh, the LCS um, the the first one, the 04 one, not 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 the 03 one. Um, the 04 World Series when the when the Red Sox fell down three uh, nothing. That's the stuff of a Hollywood script. I mean that that well they made movies they made that movie Fever Pitch and the, you know the the Red Sox are sitting out to dinner after they lost uh, the third game uh, th- that comeback I, I just I don't know that you'll ever see something quite like that again. That's the greatest comeback I think in sports history. I know it's been done a couple of times in the NHL, but uh, this was magical and I never thought it could happen. Uh, Red Sox lose the first two. Then in game three, they get pounded 19 to eight. And I remember I was there. The only thing I said to myself was the Yankees are not that good. They have some holes, which they did, especially on their pitching staff. We're better than being swept by this particular Yankee team. And uh, Kevin Millar, of course, had a great line. Don't let us win one, because if we do, we're off and running. But I had no idea that could happen. And then David Ortiz with Walk-off hits in games of four and five. Went to New York, and uh, they were helped by a couple of uh, overturned umpires' calls, Yep, uh, which, of course, would be overturned easily today with replay. Right. Uh, they were huge. Then referring to a home run, Mark Bellhorn hit to left field, and the ball hit clearly hit the fan in the first row, and the chest bounced on the field. The left field umpire said the ball was in play, which it wasn't. That was huge to have the home run, of course, then uh, – when a rod slapped the ball out of Brunson Arroyo's yep. hands oh, rolling down the yep. right field line. You said, Oh, another Red Sox moment of tragedy. And then uh, fortunately Joe West reversed that call. Yeah. I also reversed the home run call in the previous game. And uh, we'll always be uh, in debt to Joe West for getting it right. Overruling his, his partners. It just felt, you know, that year, uh, that game seven, that, that felt like the championship, like the, no disrespect to the Cardinals. It just seemed like the world series was an afterthought at that point. But the Cardinals um, went over a hundred games. They were heavy favorites. Of course they were, but it, it just, the, the magic, you know, it's, it's, it's the eye test. You you know, when something is um, magical, you, you just, you just know. Right. I, and I didn't have that feeling either going in because the Cardinals were so strong, but uh, Chris Carpenter was hurt. They had to start uh, Woody Williams, I believe, in the first game, high-scoring game, and then it just settled in from there for the Red Sox. So Pedro pitched the great game three, and Derek Lowe uh, was outstanding. He won all three clinching games 
that year, the uh, Angel Series in the uh, division, then the Yankee Series, and then Game Four of the World Series. So it was meant to happen, and, uh, and it was just such a great October that carried over for many, many years. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Uh, I, I could do this all day. Um, the ballpark. Uh, there was all this talk in the in the nineties, again in the two thousands, about uh, replacing it. Um, I remember when the uh, new Yankee Stadium opened, people always said, oh, "Well, why can't the Red Sox have that?" Um, you know, the Red Sox brand, uh, especially in the two thousands, had never been higher, and you know, the new owners uh, had come in, and and uh, it, it's such a such a profitable franchise. What's your uh, attitude on, on that? I mean, Tiger Stadium was replaced. The original Yankee Stadium was replaced. Uh, Shea Stadium was replaced. Veteran Stadium was replaced. You, you see, you travel on the road, you see some of these gorgeous parks. I mean, so, some of these parks are really, really fun to do games at and, and just attend games at. Uh, what's your What's your thought on, on Fenway Park? Well, we love it. It's been my office for 41 years, uh, which I'm very privileged to, to have, but I think in the late 90s, uh, the former ownership group would have meetings with us where they had uh, yeah. models for New Fenway Park. Uh, they had plans in effect. And I think when they realized how much more it would cost than originally anticipated, uh, they sold the ball club, which, of course, they had to do anyway because it was in a trust with the Yawkey Trust. And these new owners came in. We didn't think it was possible to rebuild Fenway. But I think modern engineering I helped make it possible. They did a structure test that found it had another 50 years. And they did things over a 10-year period that we never anticipated. Seats on top of the green monster. Who thought that was possible? Uh, new playing surface, uh, wider concourses, many more fan amenities. Uh, all these things that uh, we didn't think were structurally possible uh, were done and accomplished. Uh, and you give credit, number one, Larry Lucchino and Mayor Tom Menino. Uh, for getting all of that done. Um, and it works. It, it's still magical. Uh, you know, some of the seats might not be as wide as other ballparks uh, for uh, bigger people today than they were in 1912. When <laughs> My kids open. asked me that when I took them to Fenway Park. They said, the seats are smaller than other places. And I said, yeah, yeah well, they people used face to be the smaller. right way either. Yeah. But sometimes they face, uh, you have to sort of turn your head. But I think that uh, it works. Fans love it. And the ballpark itself is an attraction. And when the team isn't going as well, the ballpark becomes a bigger star. You know, it's, like I said, I, you know, I never lived in Boston. Uh, I make no secret about that. I did go, I probably covered 30, 35 games there, uh, you know, over the course of, of, of my career. So I, I know the place, I, I, you know, not, not, not like, like you, of course, and uh, people who, who are with the Red Sox every day and, uh, I just, I, I wonder, um, you know, it's just, it's the exception that proves the rule, you know, Wrigley field is, is, is in a similar, similar fate. You know, it just seems like these two buildings are going to stand the test of time. And, um, I, I think baseball is better off for it. I mean, you don't want baseball to get too homogenized, um, you know, as it is, uh, you know, they, they do th this new schedule with all the interleague play and everybody's playing everybody. And it just seems it seems like uh, radical realignment is coming. Um, you know, it, it seems like eventually there'll be a, 
uh, some kind of a division with the Red Sox and the the Mets, the Yankees, the Phillies, things like that. And it'll be based on geography, not uh, the American and National League. You know, I remember when they when they changed the umpires, when they got rid of American and National League umpire, there used to be the thing called the National League strike zone. And now, you know, it's all the umpires are the same. So it, 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 it's 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 really been homogenized and it's good to see some aspects of baseball that simply are not movable. And that is Fenway Park. Yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, Seth. And uh, we want to keep it going for as long as we can. And they they do make improvements every year. We have a great grounds creeper, keeper in the Dave Mellor and the. Uh, he put in a new field again this year with new turf. They have new lights, LED lights. Um, new scoreboard. I noticed that. Right. And it just keeps uh, improving. They have to maintain, certainly. And it's costly. But the ballpark, as we say, remains an attraction. And I think a new park would be for a couple of years. And I love the new parks. Uh, certainly, Larry Lucchino again set the trend with Baltimore, along with Janet Marie Smith designing Camden Yards. Right, but so also many San Diego. He helped go. design Sit Petco Park too. Like right. Petco Park rebuilt Fenway, and uh, you know you look at Pittsburgh. What a beautiful park that is! Uh, I think they're all very, very good. Well, it's, it's truly, truly remarkable, um, Joe. The relationship with players, as we as we wrap this up. Um, the relationship that you were able to have uh, with players um, was truly unique. You know, you were a, you were an employee, you were, you were, you weren't a, you weren't a journalist per se, you were a broadcaster and you were a part of the team uh, and the relationships that you were able to build throughout the, the eighties and the nineties, you know, as, as you got established you know, since 1983 um, you have lifelong friendships that are built in this day and age uh, with social media, the way it is and clickbait, the way it is players uh, seem very leery of the media, not necessarily the team broadcasters, but the media in general. And I always think that it's harder now for a reporter to build up those relationships now um, than it was in the eighties, the nineties and the two thousands. Um, it's truly a, a remarkable time that you were able to broadcast and, you know, you're a fabric of a franchise for so many generations now. Um, it just it's amazing to me uh, how much play, how, how many players went out of their way to embrace you. Well, I think, uh, you know, they appreciate your loyalty and they know that uh, you're pulling for them. And I don't think players have changed that much over the years other than their paycheck, certainly. Um, and I think you just treat them as individuals and treat them fairly. Uh, I mean, I've had some great friendships over the years. Um, obviously going to be closer to some players than others, as you would in any walk of life. So sure. uh, as I said, it's, it's tough to pick all time favorites. I mean, some are utility players, uh, fill-ins, the guys who are here for shorter periods. A lot of times they're, they're guys that grew up in the farm system where you follow them all along. But uh I think social media does make it different. I am not on social media. Uh, my feeling is I have a microphone, <laughs> so that's a little more powerful. <laughs> and uh, we can uh, just use that to uh, our advantage. Uh, and, you know, I think trust is the biggest thing. And players move a lot more today, obviously. So that makes it much more difficult to, to sure. establish relationships. 
I mean, when I was starting uh, with the Red Sox, uh, I was the same age as many of the players. And obviously now there's a huge age gap, uh, which, you know, it can bridge to a certain extent, but you're not going to have a lot of socializing either. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember just, you know, starting covering games in the in the 90s. I covered the Rockies and the Mariners in the beginning of my career. And, uh, you know, I was 23, 24 years old and players trusted me. And I just I don't see that trust now. I, I feel like now, you know, for a 23, 24 year old uh, to go into a clubhouse, you know, it would be about what what pictures could I tweet out or or share and and, and what could it be? And I, I just think players um see that and they, they, they you know they see they see how the media has changed and i, I just like i said it, you were able to uh take advantage of a time because i think that the relationship between a broadcaster and player is can, can be lifelong friendships there are you know baseball players that i call on now you know that from from my days covering the game that i still you know care about them i care about their families and things like that and it's it's something that i hope stays in sports because I don't want social media to get in the way of that. Right. And I think you can do it in baseball more than other sports because they have games every day and you're exposed every day. Yeah. Uh, good point. So that, that really helps. And I, I've maintained a lot of great friendships uh, with uh, Red Sox uniform people over the years. I mean, one of my closest friends in life is Joseph Michael Morgan, Morgan magic. who's now 92. Uh, but it runs a spectrum of, uh, you know, Pedro Martinez, we stay in touch, and Roger, of course, uh, Nomar. It just goes on and on. Uh, Brian Dahlbach, Rich Hill, uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. I mean, I, could, I, mean, I know I'm leaving a lot of people out who are very close, uh, but it's, it's nice to have those opportunities uh, to have those friendships and to continue them even after the playing days are done. Well, Joe, I, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Uh, this has been a, a wonderful experience uh, just to hear the stories and, and to, to hear your voice again. I mean, I can hear it anytime I want. I just press a button on, on the app. And I can hear you all the time, but uh, a little less this season. And uh, I applaud you for, for, for doing that. Uh, congratulations on a remarkable, remarkable career. And uh, I look forward to hearing you for as long as you want to keep doing it. And I'd love to stay in touch. Well, thank you very much, Seth. It's been an honor to be with you, uh, not only today, but going back over the last, what, 23 years or so. And uh, glad to see you. You're still going strong. A legendary Joe Castiglione. Oh, what a great voice. I can listen to him for three hours a day. Well, now it's just two and a half, right? Thanks for listening to this episode of Sports with Friends. Next week, 399, we're doing something on the situation with the NHL and the Pride Nights. Uh, so many players and teams didn't want to participate, and we're going to get to the bottom of that next week on the podcast. And then the big episode, 400. Uh, the clue is he's been on the show a number of times, and it's a fairly big name. I think that's pretty much giving it away right now we'll have to wait and see thanks for listening we'll see you next week if you want me to stay i'll be around today to be available for you to see i'm about to go and then you'll know for me to stay i got to be me Take me for granted.
Taking up my time.